Good morning. I am going to start out by apologizing because I know I will not get through this without coughing. Last weekend, my wife and I celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary by going up to the uh, Mackinac Island in Mackinac City and up in the Upper Peninsula. And uh, she had asked me what I wanted for my anniversary, and she came down with bronchitis. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. So fortunately, I think she's making a turn for the better, but I'm, I'm up coughing all night right now, so I ask your forgiveness. And if you're used to hugging me, either coming in or leaving, I would suggest you not do that today. Those that you kiss me on the mouth, that's out of the question also. <clears throat> this is my uh, last sermon as your interim pastor. And uh, I've been thinking about what I should say in a parting message. Uh, I know that last week when Jeff announced that uh, Pat Malloy had agreed to come and be the lead pastor here at Living Stones, uh, I, I thought I heard the roar of approval come all the way up into the Upper Peninsula. Uh, and we don't have to listen to that guy anymore. So, uh, <clears throat> but, I, but I think Pat is an answer to many prayers over the last uh, 14 months or so, and we're looking very much forward to him coming and being with us. And I believe that God will do a great work here at Living Stones with Pat uh, leading us in that work. But I think it's important for us to remember that uh, no man, no matter how talented, how gifted it is, he is, or woman, or anyone, any human, uh, is responsible for the greatness of the kingdom of God. It is Jesus whom we serve. And we're all in this together. And we have a responsibility. And so I know that many have been taking a wait-and-see posture over the last 14 months, kind of uh, like sitting on the sidelines waiting to see who gets to come out and call the plays. Uh, but if you've been in that posture... Uh, I want to encourage you to get off your backsides and get in the race, because that's where I'm taking my lesson from this morning, from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. <clears throat> now, before I get into that, I know that we have several in this congregation who are involved in long-distance running. Uh, I see your posts on Facebook. I see your times. Uh, you may not know this. You may not even guess it. But I ran in the first two 10Ks of uh, the sunburst uh, races that we have each year here in South Bend back in 1983 and 1984. And I know that I don't look like a long-distance runner, and I'm not. But I, got, I was, had gone back to work for the IRS in 1983, and one of the guys in the office uh, decided he wanted to run for that. So he talked me into uh, signing up for it, and I spent just a few weeks preparing for that race. And then in that June Saturday morning when we were gathered at 7 o'clock at the beginning line downtown, it was already 72 degrees out and high humidity. And I was going to take off like a bolt of lightning. Uh, well, there was a bolt, but it wasn't lightning. Uh, and uh, by the time I made it to the stadium, where you finish across the 50-yard line at the Notre Dame Stadium, uh, they pulled me over to the tent where they were putting these people who were about to expire. 
because of the way I looked. And there was a reason for that. Uh, I was one of these stupid people who thought, I don't need to take that water they're trying to give me on the path and stay hydrated because I can do this. Uh, I wish I'd have taken that water. Now, the following year, I actually prepared much earlier for the event. And we lived just two blocks north of here on Oakside. <clears throat> and I remember in the preparation, even though I'm not a long-distance runner, never have been, never will be, uh, I remember one night I went out to run, and I went down Oakside to Erskine, went down Erskine all the way to uh, Ewing, and I turned left at Ewing, and I went down to Michigan Street, and it just seemed like I was getting my rhythm, and my breath was just where it should be, and I kept going and going. I went down Michigan Street all the way to Sample Street, went over to the east from Sample Street, all the way to Twickenham, back up Twickenham, and back up to my house. I don't know what that distance is, but it was one of those few times where it seemed like everything was clicking right the way it should be. And, and I never felt better running. Now, I'm, I know it wasn't no land speed record. When I was up at uh, Mackinac last weekend, you know, they have these little gift shops up there. They got a lot of them, and fudge. Uh, and, uh, but in one of these gift shops, they have these little decals that I've seen on some of your cars. Uh, the 13.1 or the 26.2, which indicates you ran a marathon, if it's 26.2 or the 13.1, half a marathon. And I also saw a sticker that said 0, 0.0, and that's the one I wanted to buy. Uh, <clears throat> but running is an analogy that the writer of Hebrews gives us in the 12th chapter that talks about the race that we are in, and we are in a race. Make no mistake about it. That's why I said we need to get off of our backside and get on the track and start running. I want to tell you about a couple of examples of people who were runners. One, you may have heard of them, one was named Glenn Cunningham. And Glenn Cunningham was from Kansas. And when he was a little boy, they actually had one-room schoolhouses back then, and at eight years of age, Glenn's job was to go into that schoolhouse and to start the little potbelly stove to warm it up so that when the teacher and the other students came, it was ready to go, and they were ready for the school day. Now, I we can't relate to that today, can we? Glenn didn't turn on the air conditioning. But, he, but he did, that was his job. Well, one day, somebody had mistakenly put in the kerosene can gasoline. And when he tried to light, of course, you can imagine, the schoolhouse caught on fire. Glenn was severely burned from the waist down. Uh, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> uh, at the hospital, he was taken to the county hospital, and he was so dreadfully burned, he was semi-conscious, but he faintly heard the doctor telling his mother that uh, her son would surely die, and which was really for the best, because uh, he was in such terrible and devastating condition over the lower half of his body. But he didn't want to die, and so he made up his mind that he would survive, and he did, somehow, to the amazement of his physicians. And yet, <clears throat> when the mortal danger was passed, he again heard his doctor consulting with his mother and telling his mother uh, in quiet tones that since the fire had destroyed so much flesh on the lower part of his body, it would be almost better if he had died since he was doomed to a lifetime to be a cripple and to have no use at all of his lower limbs. But his mother refused to listen to the doctors and refused to let them amputate those legs. 
Now, once more, this little brave boy made up his mind. He was not to be a cripple. He would walk, but unfortunately, from the waist down, he had no motor ability. His thin, scarred legs just dangled there, all but lifeless. But ultimately, he was released from the hospital, and every day afterward, his mother and father would massage his little legs, but there was no feeling, no control, nothing. Yet his determination that he would walk was as strong as ever. And when he wasn't in bed, he was confined to a wheelchair. And one sunny day, his mother wheeled him out on the yard to get some fresh air. And that day, instead of sitting there, he threw himself on the ground from the chair and pulled himself across the grass, dragging his legs behind him. And he worked his way to the white picket fence bordering their lot. And with great effort, he raised himself up on the fence And stake by stake, he began dragging himself along the fence, resolved that he would walk. He started to do this every single day. And he wore a smooth path all around the yard beside the fence. And there was nothing he wanted more than to develop life in those legs. And ultimately, through his daily massages and his iron persistence and his resolute determination, he did develop the ability first to stand up and then to walk haltingly with help and then to walk by himself, and then almost miraculously to run. He began to run to school, and he ran for the sheer joy of running. You can imagine how he must have felt. The picture you see on the screen is Glenn Cunningham. At that time, he was Dr. Glenn Cunningham. In February of 1934, known as the Kansas Flyer, In New York City's Madison Square Garden, this young man, who was not expected to survive, who would surely never walk and would never hope to run, this determined Glenn Cunningham ran the mile in four minutes and eight seconds, which at that time was the world's record. And later that same year, he had trimmed a couple of more seconds off of his record. So it's an amazing story of sheer determination, of dragging yourself back into the race, and finishing the race. I want to tell you also about John Stephen Aquari. It's a more recent story. Here's a picture of John Stephen Aquari. <coughs> excuse me. That's the last time I'll say excuse me. Next time I cough, you already understand. I said excuse me. Back in October of 1968. Now, how long ago was that? That's 51 years ago. The first Olympic Games were being held in a Latin American country in Mexico. And uh, it was being held in Mexico City. And the marathon started at 3 p.m. local time in Mexico City that day. There were 74 participants from all over the world running in that marathon. And out of the 74, 17 could not finish. At 7 p.m., it was almost an hour since all marathon runners had passed the finish line. 26.2 miles. And so most of the crowd had dissipated and left But suddenly, a lone runner, wearing the colors of Tanzania, emerged through a stadium gate, literally hobbling, and the event left the last few thousand in the audience that remained amazed at what they experienced next. The man that emerged was John uh, Stephen Aquari, who while running had fallen down and had badly hurt himself. He was bleeding, and his knee had got dislocated from the joint. And considering the severity of the injuries, Aquari was repeatedly asked to quit the race, but he would not. 
He fell, dragged himself, ran in between, and finished the marathon, limping over the line. And on the finishing line, those who remained in the stadium gave him a huge applause and a lot of cheering. His body was exhausted, but not his spirit. His competitors had crossed him one by one, but his determination rewarded him in, a tremendous, in tremendous pain. Aquari never won any Olympic gold medal that day, but he was one of the greatest examples of ne the never-give-up spirit, a tale of courage. And he was asked the reason for doing such a crazy kind of act, and his reply was, my country did not send me 10,000 miles just to start the race. They sent me to finish the race. Now we get encouraged by examples like this. But there's a passage of Scripture in Hebrews of the 12th chapter, beginning with verse 1. And this is the message I want to... The last message I'll give you as your interim pastor. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Just as we take encouragement from the examples of Glenn Cunningham and John Stephen Akari, our greatest example of encouragement is the man that Denise referred to a while ago who hung on the cross and took on our sins. He finished the course. He set the example for us. And if we keep our eye on him, this passage talks about so great a cloud of witnesses. They're talking about those who have run the race before us, and there were many who ran the race before us. Whenever you see the word therefore in a passage, as you do at the beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews, what that means is to give it context, you need to see what preceded it. And so we go back to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. And the 11th chapter of Hebrews, I'm probably not going to read all of this, but it's Scripture. It's okay to read Scripture in church, isn't it? I think so. How faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You gotta, that's one you've got to memorize. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Why do we believe what we believe about the beginnings of the universe, about who we are here and what our future is about? It is through the eye of faith. None of us have direct knowledge of that, but it is by faith that we understand this. By faith, the writer says, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. 
By faith he condemned the world and became heir to the right, of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. Even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she was unable to become, uh, because she, uh, he, she, uh, God made good on his promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came to sins as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the sea. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. By faith, when Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith... Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's son and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw in he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses. See how many times by faith is mentioned here? By faith, Moses. When he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw he, him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea. And we go on and on through the book of uh, Hebrews in which they talk about these heroes of the faith that we read in the Old Testament who had not yet received the promise. They were looking forward to something that had not yet come, the promised Messiah. But they died while they were in the race. They completed the race by their faith. And so when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, we've been prepared for the race. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I guarantee you that there's many of us in this room who have entanglements that will hinder us in this race. And I guarantee there are many of us in this room who are trying to throw off those hindrances. You're doing it with the help of brothers and sisters who love you, with the help of family and friends. You're doing it with the help of God and prayer and continually getting up and keep moving forward. You don't let yourself be thrown down and just lay there and die. You get up and you keep moving on toward the goal. 
throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, <clears throat> I'm not going to demonstrate this for your sake, but back in the days that this was written, uh, the, the athletes that ran in these races had robes that they took off. They were virtually naked when they were running because they didn't want to be tangled up in their clothing. And so he says, leave these things. And he know, you know this is an analogy to the sins, to the past life, to the habits that are hanging on to us, to the things that keep us from moving forward. And so running the race isn't just adjusting our schedules a little to accommodate the race. I've never understood the idea of meeting with the church when something else doesn't take a priority. I want to be with God's people on the first day of the week. I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't want to be here once or twice or three times a month. I want to be here every time that I can be. What do you do? That question was asked of a person who had done a kind thing. They said, what do you do? Obviously, the question was, what do you do for a living? But what they said was, I'm a Christian. I know, but what do you do? Well, I'm a Christian. I know, but what, how do you support yourself as a Christian? Well, then they gave him the name of the job. But the point is that being a Christian is not ancillary to something else. Something else is ancillary to being a Christian. And so my, my admonishment to us is that we make this Christianity, this race that we're in, the priority of our lives and not make it ancillary to everything else. We have a lot of entanglements that are going to hinder or prevent even running the race, but we need to endure. And then he says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I have read that those who do run long-distance races who are really good at it say that they're not really competing against others, they're really competing against themselves. And so they fix their eye on their goal, and they move forward toward that goal. Our goal is Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. A lot of folks approach this Christianity thing like we're in a sprint and not a marathon. You know, we make a bold, fast start, but then we get our energy dissipated and we fall by the wayside. Jesus talked about that in a couple of parables. He talked about the soils. But it's also true in this race. We're in a marathon. This is long distance. This is long term. Paul also used the analogy when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8 of being in a race. He said, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is 
in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. What sort of race did the apostle run? We've made reference to what Paul said over in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, in previous lessons. But I think it is beneficial to be reminded that Paul went through a lot in his race. He says, beginning in verse 21, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I must boast. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. There's none of us that went through what Paul went through after his conversion to Christianity as he ran that race to keep the faith. And then the charge is to finish the race. There's no point in being in the race. It's like John Stephen Aquari said, my country didn't send me 10,000 miles to start the race. They sent me there to finish the race. And he didn't break any world records, but he left us an example, I think, that we can follow as we run this race because we're going to stumble and fall. We're going to get ourselves out of joint. There's going to be things laid before us that's going to be hard to overcome. But the idea is to stay in the race, to finish. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow worthy and lose heart. What this world needs are Christians who are more than just Sunday wonders. They wonder whether they should bother to get dressed on Sunday morning. They wonder whether they should set aside any funds to contribute during the time the offering is taken when they manage to get up in time to go to church. They wonder whether they should bother to even pretend to be godly in front of their children before their neighbors. Those are Sunday wonders. We need to be in this race 24-7. And the world also wonders if this is what Christianity really is. If so then they can have more fun doing something else. To avow to be a member of the bride of Christ, and yet to treat her as though she is nothing more than a tawdry plaything, is it's, it's to dishonor the one who is the master of life. So let me close with this. We believe that God has been at work to bring Pat Malloy and his family to help us and work with us here at Living Stones.
But God will not be glorified unless we all remember the commitment we made when we assumed identity with Christ. So my admonition to you as the departing interim pastor, but continuing around as an elder, is stay in the race. And if you fall on the side, get back in the race and join us as we move forward on the south side of South Bend. Will you bow with me, please? Holy God, our Father in heaven, we thank you, Father, for preparing Pat and his family to come and work with us. We thank you for preparing us, Father, to receive him in this work. And I pray, Father, that in the days that come, that you will imbue both he and us with a determination to stay in the race and to finish the race, to be faithful in all things. And in all of this, may it accrue to your glory. In the name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen.